The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get into the interview, I would be honored if you would consider going to thepaulleslie.com and clicking support the show. There are quite a number of things I want to accomplish with the Paul Leslie Hour, and you can help me get more of these interviews out there to the masses. It only takes a moment, and it makes a world of difference. Last but not least, tell someone about the Paul Leslie Hour. Let them know in whatever way you can. And now, let's get into the interview. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm joined by a folk singer, songwriter, poet, multi-instrumentalist, and performer. Luke Faust is with us, and in addition to his work as a musical artist, he teaches dance. I want to invite everybody out there to go to movementspace.com. And Mr. Faust, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Well, uh, it's my pleasure, too. It's right back at you. Thank you very much for having me on. An honor. So I think most stories are best from the beginning. Where are you from? Well, actually, I was born in Manhattan. And uh, I grew up in New England, in uh, New Hampshire, uh, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, out on the Cape. And then I came back to New York. My family moved back when I was 14. And uh, then, where am I from? I keep, keeps going on where I'm from. <laughs> I'm from. And then I moved to New Jersey when I was around 25 or so. In 1962. Okay. <laughs> And I think it's interesting. I, I always pay attention when I hear the 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 name of Hoboken, the birthplace of Frank Sinatra, one of our great American singers. Yeah. Can you describe Hoboken when you moved there? Oh yeah, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget my my impressions of the place. It was a it was a really beautiful strange, very small town right across the river from New York City. And uh, my friend Mike Shapiro, I was living on the Lower East East Side then, and I had a friend named Mike Shapiro who uh, I met at the Art Students League. And uh, one day out of the blue, he said, he said, Luke, he said, you ought to go check out Hoboken. So... I said, okay. So I got on the path train, and I went over to Hoboken, and I came up out of the station, I looked around, and I swear all, all the hairs on the back of my neck stood up on end because it was like with that little train ride going a 1,000 miles away from New York to the middle of the country somewhere at some small mill town. And uh, the kids were playing in the streets. You know, it was like amazing. And I walked down River Street, which was right next to the waterfront, which is the working waterfront then. And I got to Second Street. I looked up. There was a Ferenc sign. I said, I'm in. So I moved I moved there in uh, 
the rent was uh, $35.50 a month for a four-room cold water shotgun flat. Look like if you've ever seen uh, On a Waterfront. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it looked like an Eva Marie Saint's apartment. In fact, she might have. It might have been one of her. Might have been her apartment. I don't know. But there I was, and the police, and the folks. There were people in the in town who I swear had didn't know what a streetlight was for. And there are people here. Lots of people. I think probably most of the people had never been to New York. Had no intention of going because. The whole west side of the town was industrial. So people could have a job in town, walk to work, walk home, and that was it. That's all they needed to do. And the town was full of great stuff. There was late-night restaurants. There were bakeries that opened at 4 in the morning. There was a butcher that sold, you know, you could go to the butcher and get a steak and have it made it to hamburger right there so you knew what was in it and uh, I could go on and on there was a bar called the Brass Rail I think the Brass Rail is still there and uh, it was run by this guy named Fritz who everybody had a feeling was an ex-Nazi mm. and he sold these uh, uh Oh, the name slips my mind, but the beers were about this tall. Oh, and yeah. Raspberry syrup in the bottom for a dollar. Everything was, it was amazing. Every every six months, the police would tell me to get out of town. Yeah? Why? Because I was new there, <laughs> you know, and I rode a motorcycle. That's an, I was an artist. I just didn't belong. You I know? see. But I would look at them and not say anything. And six months later, some cop would tell me the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I didn't cause any trouble. I didn't uh, steal anything or break anything or anything. So after a while, they stopped telling me that. So, Luke, can you tell us about the music that you grew up with, the stuff that made the biggest impression on you? Well, Uh, I picked up the harmonica when I was nine years old, nine or ten years old. And I didn't like rock and roll. I remember Elvis Presley was, was uh, foremost in my mind. I didn't like it. Just didn't like it. And uh, at that time, we were living on the Cape, out in Wellfleet. And there was no, there was one guy in town who who fancied himself a, a country musician. <clears throat> and I kind of liked that, kind of liked that music, because it was informal, it was storytelling. Um, when I was in my room, on say on Sundays, I would tune the radio to a classical music station, and I would hum along with the classical music. I would harmonize with it, hum it, and uh, I could do that for a long, long time. 
So I didn't really get into folk music until we moved to New York. And uh, my parents had uh, a family of friends, and there were two brothers in the family, and they were both, uh, both into folk music. So um, they turned me on to the Library of Congress folk collection. So I got a set, my parents bought me a set of those records. And uh, my aunt, at one point, I think for my 14th, 15th birthday, she sent me from Los Angeles a, the cheapest Stella Whitewood guitar you could imagine. And the action, the action was already, oh, three quarters of an inch from the fingerboard. But I dragged that thing back into my room. I started listening to those records, and every song was a lesson. So I just started learning chords and playing along with it. I never had any real formal training in in uh, playing. So every song was a lesson, like I said. Um, and then at some point, uh, the mother of my two friends, she taught me a couple of chords on the banjo, five-string banjo. So I found a hawk shop and I got myself a banjo, a cheap banjo, and I started teaching myself to frail. You know, so one thing, one thing just led to another, and I was so comfortable with folk music. Rock and roll just held no attractions for me at all. Could you put it into words uh, what the magic, what the attraction or the allure of folk music is? Well, every song is different. And you could play every song differently every time. The... I would imagine that a lot of folk musicians are self-trained. So the music, for me, being not a classical music, you know, not a highly trained musician, was really accessible, you know. And it was, it's the music of America, really. It's, it's, it's the real music of America. And every song is a story. You know, every song is a statement about something. That's that's the magic for me, you know. When I was reading about you, something that came up again and again that I thought was very interesting, and it's a place in America that a lot of people have visited, and you have a particular interest, and in you learned a lot of these Appalachian ballads. Yeah. Tell me about about those. Well, they were, you know, there were a lot of them on the, on the Library of Congress recordings. I didn't really travel down there much in, in the early days at all. But there were um, <clears throat> a lot of banjo players. And uh, I didn't just learn Appalachian songs, although that was uh, maybe a big part of what I learned. I learned... Uh, um, hobo songs and 
and blues and you know a lot of different stuff from all over the country uh, I lived in uh, Austin for a while and I was a member of the folk society there in the in the early 80s and uh, somebody said once I had a, a very large repertoire which I didn't really think about, but I guess I guess I did. I had songs from all over the spectrum, you know. Um, but the Appalachian ballads, especially after I started learning banjo, five-string banjo, um, I loved the modal music, the modal tunings and just the harmonies and the strange, unearthly melodies that some of them had, you know, some of them were just, just amazing. I see the guitar there, and you've mentioned the banjo. Can you tell us all of the instruments that you can play? Well, um, starting with harmonica, guitar, um, banjo, then I went and got myself a fiddle, and I fiddle somewhat, and then I got a mandolin because it's tuned like a fiddle. And then um, sometimes I would tune my guitar in an open tune and play slide guitar. And then uh, at one point I picked up a cello. That was funny sometimes. And then uh, the last instrument I picked up was jug. <laughs> So uh, I taught myself to play jug. Um, yeah, cello was cello. Cello was uh, humorous sometimes because I would play that. I had that when I was in Austin, and I was uh, part of a group there. Um, I forget the name now, but um, we would go down on Sixth Street and and play the joint, and I and I would play the cello, but I'd hang it around my neck, <laughs> and I'd hold the bow so it went this way, like this, and I'd be playing like that, you know. And uh, one time there was a bunch of people there from from the uh, university uh, department of music, and it just totally freaked them out to see me playing a cello like that. That was humorous. They just laughed and laughed. That was fun. And what about the songs that you write yourself? I've had the chance to listen to a great number of them that you've recorded. Very simply done, just vocal and guitar, which yeah. is a formula that works. When did you start writing songs? Oh, well, I've been... I've been uh, sort of writing poetry for as far back as I can remember. Um, and I guess I, I started writing, I started writing, songs started coming to me in the, in the late, in the 60s and 70s. That's when I've written most of them. I've written a, a few recently. That was done. That was done uh, with the sponsorship of uh, Glenn Morrow at Barnard Records in Hoboken. Uh, that group of songs. I'm I'm kind of starting another list that I that would I would like to record, going back through my 
my notebooks and stuff. So, well, one of the the bonuses on this episode of the show, which I'm very happy about, we are going to be treated to a musical performance of one of your songs, and I'm hoping you can introduce the song. And we also have a performer who's going to be joining you, someone who's very close to you. Yeah, that's my wife, Dina. And, uh, yeah, she's going to be, uh, perform, uh, she's going to be joining me on, uh, she has the ukulele here. Oh, nice. Um, I wrote that, let's see, I wrote that song. The inspiration with that, for that song is seeing plants grow out of cracks in the sidewalk and the streets and seeing how strong they are and how they persevere. And how they never give up, you know. They they just they just the strength the strength of the the, the life that that breaks breaks things apart in order to grow. It really really uh, impressed me. And then uh, we introduced we introduced the song to the kids at the dance studio. And they love to sing the chorus. <laughs> so uh, you you heard a little bit of that that oh, yeah. that recording. But they would love to sing the chorus, and they they'd act it out. You know, press on, press on. You know, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, here's here's Dina. Okay. Hello, Dina. Hi. So great of you all to do this. Well, this is an important song. This was a lesson that we would we would teach the children. You know, it was a, there was a whole <coughs> story to, we would tell. Did you want to say? And we, uh, whoops, and we would uh, talk about the the perseverance and and how life can be hard at times. And yeah, and you, you know, just you just want to keep so it was keep a, moving on. You know, don't want to give up. Yeah, so that's how we would use that as a lesson. Okay. So here it is. Not for us, Lord. 
Those all resemble God for us on varying Give us a junkyard, a windy hillside, some vacant lot where the bees buzz free. Press on, press on, through rock and rubble. Press on, press on, through stone and you so much yes. thank you for that wonderful performance and a song that really really it's a great song and i hope i hope it gives people that uh, that little edge to press on yeah um, so yes that's... yes all right i'm gonna step out of the picture and you guys can continue. <laughs> thank, you, Tina. thank you for having me thank absolutely you. okay so, Luke, do you have any memories that you can share with us about a place that really has a, a, a quite a, a part of the story of American music? I'm talking about the Gaslight Cafe. Oh, the Gaslight. Yeah, that's a yeah that that was an iconic place. About everybody played there. Van Rock, Dylan. Ramblin' Jack, even Peter, Paul, and Mary, you know, people, they played there. Um, Tom Paxton, oh, the list goes on and on, you know. Um, uh, and it was the basement, it was, uh, it was down the basement on McDougal Street. And you go down there and the ceilings were low like in a basement although it was you know deeper than uh deeper than most um but um and the stage was small 
And you you know that habit that some boutique um, places have of snapping their fingers for the applause? Oh, yeah. That started in the gaslight. Really? Yeah. And the reason it started there was because if people applauded, the upstairs neighbors would phone down and complain like heck. <laughs> so they did it out of necessity, just snapping their fingers for applause. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And the coffee was really good, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that counts. <laughs> yeah. Well, can you tell the people out there about Dave Von Ronk? Well, he he was uh, called he was called the mayor of McDougal Street. You know how certain people in, in certain situations are are just natural leaders and it really influential figures. Well, Dave was was that around the village, and uh, he was just as big. Big, friendly, raucous, witty guy, you know, and uh, a really good performance singer. He was a guitar teacher, although I never took lessons from him. And uh, he he was just he knew everybody. He knew everybody, and and uh, he did his he did you know good things for everybody. Um, and he lived in the West Village, too. He, he didn't live, uh, you know, he lived there. He lived there. Um, what can I say? What can else can I say about him? He was, uh, yeah, he, he was just great. He, he was his, from my understanding, he was a merchant seaman on the West Coast. And then... He uh, discovered that he could live much more comfortably as a folk musician, and not not have to go out and you know risk drowning and so forth and so on. So he he came to New York and and remade himself, reinvented himself. There's another artist I'm hoping you can tell us about. Tell us about Jerry Rasmussen. Oh, you know about him. Okay. Yeah, we we played together for for quite a few years. We we never had a real we never had a a name to our group, you know, our duet. But we we played together and it was kind of a natural thing. We just started picking one day and it was we just clicked like that. So we just started hanging out and playing a lot. Um <clears throat> Rasmussen, I don't know, I don't know all of anybody's story, but he he's been to the Antarctic at some point in his early life, and he he is now um, living in Derby, Connecticut, uh, having found Christ, you know, and become a, a really devout uh, Christian. He's He's writing songs, and he's made uh, several albums. I don't have I don't I have one or two of them, but I don't have all of them. And uh, at least twenty of his songs have been recorded by other artists. I couldn't tell you who, but 
Um, so he's 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 very active now, even today. He's very active. Uh, great voice, great singer, great uh, instrumentalist. He's really good. Well, this is maybe a shot in the dark, but I've been listening to the recordings of of this singer songwriter. Did you ever meet or know Lynn Chandler? Uh, I well, I, I'm pretty sure I've met him once. I don't really recall. Um, my memory, my memory gets a little gets you know is sketchy. It has a lot of holes in it. There's a saying that if you can remember the '60s, you weren't there. <laughs> You know, uh, Len Chandler, yeah, it's a very, he was a friend of uh, Van Rock's. Of course, everybody knew Van Rock, you know. Um, but I, I can't, I can't really tell you too yeah. much. Well, one singer-songwriter that a lot of people around the world know, and if anyone has ever read the book Chronicles, Volume 1. yeah. You're mentioned in Bob Dylan's book, Chronicles. Yeah. He says, I think he said something like you, he said about Luke Faust, he said something like uh, you had a similar disposition or something along those lines to him. I have no idea what he meant by that. (laughs) (laughs) We've met, you know, and we've... we've, uh, we we have met a few times and and I was really he came to the he came to the village and started playing I was really impressed with the work he was doing you know I thought I thought he was amazing the songs he wrote but uh, one of the memories I have of Dylan is 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 uh, waking him up at four in the morning going up to where he was sleeping in somebody else's house and I was I was into I don't know why what I, I some sometimes I just don't know what I was thinking but I was I was into knife throwing so I was throwing knives into the woodwork just wandering around this apartment being destructive and throwing knives into the woodwork and he woke up and he said would you get out of here I'm trying to sleep and at that point I threw I threw in the knife and I went out the window. <laughs> and I said, Oh. <laughs> of course it was four in the morning, so luckily nobody was on the sidewalk. <laughs> so that was that was one of the times that we had a very intimate interaction there, me and Dylan. Can you tell us about the insect trust? Yeah, the Insect Trust. Well, Nancy Jeffries and I are the only uh, members of that band who are alive now, as as far as I know. Um, I was living in Hoboken at that place that I rented first on 2nd Street and River. And uh, all of a sudden, Nancy Jeffries and um, Bill Barr showed up from Memphis, and they said they moved to the, into the building. There was an empty apartment, 
and they said they were starting a band, and they had gotten a uh, $25,000 advance from, God, my, I can't remember his name. He was a producer in Memphis. <clears throat> and they met him at a party and, and talked him into, you know, bankrolling them. But it they had no... Sam Phillips, was it? Huh? Was it Sam Phillips? N no, it wasn't Sam Phillips, no. Um, but they had met him at a party in Memphis and talked to him. Sweet talked them into letting him into bankrolling a band. Of course, it was just Nancy and Bill at the time. So they came here, they came to uh, New York to put on a band, you know, get a band together. So they included me, and I was on, I started learning how to play electric guitar as a second guitar, and Bill was first guitar. And then they found Trevor Kohler, um, who's a horn player, a mighty horn player, and uh, and uh, Bob Palmer, who was also at that time from Memphis, and he was a he played all kinds of instruments, um, horn instruments, uh, vocal, you know, flute and everything else. But we didn't have a bass player or a drummer, so. They started booking time at studios, and they would go and hire studio bass players and drummers. So we didn't really have a band, but we put out the Insect Trust album. We managed to put that out. Um, then uh, we started doing we started doing gigs, and uh, Trevor decided that the that the group ought to be integrated. So he found in Memphis, he found a couple of studio musicians who were black, and one was a drummer and one was a bass player. But they were living large in Memphis. They were doing really good there. So we had to pay, if we wanted them to come up to Hoboken, New York, we had to pay their airfare up and back and, uh, you know, put them up and everything. And, and uh, we, <laughs> we, we were so broke, you know, we were lending each other the same 50 cents, you know. So that, that didn't really work out after a while. Uh, but uh, we, did, we did play some fairly large venues. Uh, who did we, who did we open for? Oh my God, my my memory. I'm sorry, you know my memory is so no problem. Such sketchy sometimes. But um, finally we let them go, and we found a couple of guys who were whose names I can't remember. Of course, they were from Vermont, and we did we did at one point. After we put out uh, Hoboken Saturday Night, 
we were, you know, we were cruising around and, and doing gigs, and we did a gig in, in Massachusetts, uh, Stanford, Massachusetts, I believe. And the local Hells Angels came to hear us. I remember that. <laughs> and they loved us. They loved what we did. And uh, we were riding high. We were feeling so good. And we finally had a bass player and a drummer. And we got back to Hoboken, and this producer called up and dropped us. And I got on the phone. I said, come on. I said, we just got a bass player and drummer. We did this great gig in Massachusetts, you know, at least hear us. Nope, that was it. That was it. And that was kind of, everybody kind of drifted away after that. Hmm. Well, something that you're involved in now, I think it's it's very important. And a lot of times people, they pay attention to many things, but it is so important for us to pay attention to how we move, when we move, and how we, the, the way that we move. And everybody can go to movementspace.com. Tell us about what you do now. Well, right now we're living in New Mexico. We had the we had the movement space. We still have the website, <clears throat> but um, unfortunately, after COVID really hit, um, we had to close the studio down. And uh, we we haven't, you know, we we were unable to restart it in any meaningful way. So um, there there really is no physical movement space anymore. Um, you mentioned how we move and moving is important, and I I totally agree with that. I've been uh, studying um, and practicing Tai Chi for. Um, half a century now, you know. Um, so moving is very, very important. How we do it, when we do it. So um, we're here. We are in New Mexico. We sold our house. They gave us some money to to uh, be free, pay down our debts, and move. And Dean family is here. So mm -hmm. her mother is 93 and her she's got a sister and two brothers here. So we moved here and and uh, the cost of living is a bit cheaper here. So here we are. And we're kind of like re-finding, re, uh, restarting ourselves mm -hmm. in, in a different way and so forth. So uh, we've been kind of like an extended sabbatical. Hmm. But we're going to go, we're going to get back into play. We were doing open mics on, on Zoom and so forth up in New Jersey, and we haven't been doing that lately, but I think we're going to start, uh, you know, getting our chops back and, and getting into that again. So we'll be doing open mics. So for anybody out there who's watching or listening in, you know, there have been a few times where I felt rough. I haven't felt very good. Yeah. And I realized after moving around, 
a lot of the a lot of the the feelings that I had, the roughness or whatever, went away after I got I got moving. And I'm hoping you can maybe tell anybody who's listening in if they maybe are a little bit sedentary right now. What advice would you have for somebody to get the ball rolling? Yeah. Well, if you can, go for walks. Yeah. If you can, even even walk around a house. Don't just sit in a chair with, with the TV in your face for <laughs> for the whole day. Don't don't do that because you're gonna sink into despair. You know, just like move, get your get your uh, blood circulating because well, the mind and the body are one thing, you know. And if your body stops long enough, your mind will stop. Hmm. So that's that's my recommendation. That's that's my advice. I've... What is the best thing about being Luke Faust? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Ah. Uh, The best thing about being who I am, well, you could ask anybody the same question, what's the best thing about being who you are? And they might have to think a long, long time about that, but I think the best thing about being me is, is uh, watching watching the world and being aware and and just being alive being being in this life you know and and being able to being 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 the having the friends I do have having the the friends I do have who who are like a a real family, you know, they're, they're spread out, but of course my family's spread out too, and and so forth and so on. But to to just be part of a network of really beautiful people, hmm. really beautiful people, and my wife Dina, she's one of them for sure. Well, on that note, I always like to I like to close the show. No doubt there are people who are joining us who have met you at, at various points along the way, people who know you now. Would yeah. you say anything in closing to anybody who's joining us? Um, well, you know, when I was thinking about that, I, I knew, you know, this was a part of your show, but... Uh, when I was thinking about that, I remembered a dream I had back in February. And uh, I could, I, I have, you see this this little pocket notebook here, right? Yes. I've been writing in these things since 1958. Wow. And I have them all, except one which I lost. Now, in here is a dream I had. And maybe I would like to close with a little reading of this dream. Oh, that'd be nice. 
And this was, uh, I dreamed this in February, February 28th of this year. And it goes something sort of like this. I met the Dalai Lama last night. I said, your face is my face. My heart is your heart. Our breaths are one breath. And then I spoke to everyone. I said, the ocean is the greatest power in the world, but it does not know it. You have that power. Even the forces that oppose you get their strength from you. Feel that power and use it. You must know that you have it. You are the ocean. Know it. And that was the dream. Wow. How interesting. <laughs> These things just come. You know, I can, I can talk about things I've done because they just come to me. It's not like my ego thought them up and I, you know, invented them. You can't really invent anything. All I can do is find things. Mm. So these things come to me. They come through me. Well, there's no pressure here. I, I just was thinking, uh, you have that guitar there. Is there perhaps a tune you could serenade us with, send us on our, our way with a tune? Do you? <laughs> How about, um, why don't you do uh, uh, the song um, that you wrote this year? Oh, yeah. Let's see here. What's it? It's called uh, Face to Face. Yeah, Face to Face. I have one called Face to Face. I could sing it with him. Yeah. Great. All right. So I'm not going to, I'll just sing, okay, Luke? Yeah. And you play. Now, this was written, when was this written? March, April? March. when we were locked into our homes. Yeah, after we were locked into our homes and everything had to stop. There's a memento from another time and place Back when it was no big deal to meet up face to face we the shoulder to shoulder We pass things hand to hand Go out of an evening And tune up with the band Go to the beach and wallow Go to the club and scream Take a flight overnight Stand in line for ice cream But now I sit by the window And watch a jogger pass Now and then a car rolls by Not moving very fast. The spring trees are in blossom. The robins have arrived. Squirrels run on the power lines. The sparrows organize. But 
for us we've hit a wall Demons running scared We learn again when you don't see nothing Don't mean there's nothing there So when you see your cousin's face Give him and her some breathing space we still have everything to know And fear and greed, fear and greed Are not the way to go All right, Luke, Dina, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. It's been a sheer pleasure, pure pleasure. Thank An you. honor. All right, folks. Well, thank you so much. It's great to connect with you. Yes. Same well, here. You. Back at thank you. Thank you for finding Luke. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, folks. Take care. Until next time. Yes. Yep. Yep. And a hug. A hug. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Stay Bye -bye. safe now. You too. Bum up on a beep, boop, boop, beep, leap, knock at the bees. I walk on tea, sugar, like it's a little bit, sugar, oh, 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 oh